everyone. Welcome to episode 189 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Who's back in town. I missed her. She was gone for a weekend. Yeah, had a great time in the Chicago area. My sister and I surprised my mom for her 84th birthday. She had no idea we were coming. So that was a lot of fun. So lovely, but the neighborhood's not the same without you. Well, I missed it too. I got to say, it, I missed you. (laughs) I miss Laura. I miss the neighborhood. Yes, indeed. My doggies. Whilst you were away, we got the Patreon giveaway sent to our winner, Cheryl. Yeah, congrats, Cheryl. And thank you so much for the wonderful picture that you sent us. Yeah, she gets bonus points because she sent a picture with her two new books And also Hester, we could see that Hester was on the side table. So thank you for joining us in our Scarlet Summer as well, Cheryl. Yes, thank you. And also congrats to Tina and Lisa, who sent us their completed bingo card, or at least one bingo on their card. Yeah, congratulations. Um, Listeners, if you're still looking for your bingo card, reminder that if you go to bookcougars.com forward slash Scarlet Summer 2023, there's a downloadable bingo card. We'd love for you to play along. Yeah, and those multiples that are in there for three of the books that are our main read-along titles, you can make substitutions. And really, the substitutions are wide-ranging, as long as it has something to do with kind of like witchcraft in a way or anything related to any of the books, right? Scarlet yeah. Letter is kind of what started it all for us with this Scarlet Summer. Yes, coming up and when we talk about what we just read, I've got some witchy book suggestions. Nice. Chris, what are you currently reading? Nothing new. I'm currently still working on the Divine Comedy and that's going pretty well. I got a new translation or a different translation and it's a small format mass market book because I just needed something that was small that can just be tossed into my purse, reading it here and there, instead of that beautiful Barnes and Noble collector's edition that has the whole shebang that was just kind of not easy to carry around. And, you know, for something like a classic and poetry in particular, I really like to read a physical book as opposed to it being on an e-reader or reading it on my phone. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, it's going well. How about you? Well, thanks to our listener, Barb, who in March sent an email letting me know about this book. I'm reading Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. It's been 20 years since she's had a novel published. So I was thinking to myself, why? I mean, not that I think it's easy to write a novel and you should do it faster. But her other book, Evidence of Things, that was 20 years ago, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. I think it was shortlisted for the Women's Book Prize. And in 2016, while she was writing Properties of Thirst, she had a massive stroke. And she was three chapters shy of finishing the novel. So then during COVID, while she was convalescing, it turns out she was spending time at her daughter's house. And it was COVID. No one could go anywhere. So she ended up finishing this novel with the help of her daughter typing it for her. I'm not very far in. I started it yesterday. This is the novel that Barb told me I would really like because of all of the food in it. And there have been little ideas and notions of one of the characters who likes to cook, but I haven't gotten to the food part. So I'm enjoying the anticipation of that. But what I have read so far, it's about a family that's living in the very dry West. 
they made a homestead there. It's around the time of the bombing at Pearl Harbor. So there's going to be a part of the story arc about Japanese internment camps in this novel. But I haven't fully gotten engrossed in that yet. Really enjoying it. If I get it done by Labor Day, it will be another book in my big book summer reading challenge because it's over 500 pages. Again, that's called Properties of Thirst by Marianne Wiggins. Thanks again, Barb. Chris, what did you just read? Well, I finished Dear Season by Aaron Flanagan. That was the one I was listening to on audio. We had Aaron on episode 188, prior episode, along with Katrina Kittle. We so enjoyed talking with them. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely check it out. But Dear Season is a mystery novel. And Erin, one of the things she mentioned in the interview when she was nominated for an Edgar Award for Best First Novel, she's like, oh, my gosh, I wrote a mystery. Like, she kind of thought it was too quiet to be a mystery is what she said. And I can understand that because it is it is not your rough and tumble mystery where the protagonist, um, you know, the main investigator gets worked over regularly and gets put through their paces. This is more a community drama, a family drama with a mystery at its heart. The teenage daughter is not in her bed the next morning. It takes place in a rural town in Nebraska where pretty much people just want to leave, especially, you know, teenagers who were of that ilk. So did she leave? Did something happen to her? We don't really know. And you get the you get pieces of her life and pieces of people in the community. There is a little bit of gore because there is a dead deer and cleanup happening around that. But there's not gratuitous violence. It's a lot of what went on and people talking and thinking. And I really enjoyed it. It kept me guessing about what really happened and if anything did happen. So overall, if you're looking for a mystery that won't, stress you out or make you gag <laughs> because there's so much <laughs> no blood and yeah you know um this is definitely one to check out i enjoyed it very much i enjoyed the narrator and i look forward to reading more from aaron yeah i really enjoyed her novel come with me which jess pubbed yesterday it's available now oh nice yeah yeah, yeah and she had some good humor in it as well so that was deer season by aaron flanagan Well, I did some witchy reading, as I said. I finished The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. I had started this when we recorded the last episode. Chris, there was a Dante moment. (laughs) I had a Dante on the doily moment. The main character, Mika Moon, wakes up and she says, she had woken with menstrual cramps that had come from Dante's worst circle of hell. He's everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So Mika Moon is a loner witch living in Britain, and she ends up taking a job at a place called No Warehouse because it's very difficult to find because it's under a spell, so no one knows it's there. And it's under a spell because it's guarding three young witches who are being raised by another witch who is incognito because she's a workaholic and has left these three young children in the care of her chosen family. And they're all devoted to her and doing a wonderful job raising them, but they realize they need help because they're witches and they need to learn how to use their craft. 
So they hire Mika Moon to come live with them. She's had a very difficult childhood and doesn't really know how to settle down because she was one of those people who was moved from place to place. And she was living with an adopted family. And so now she has this opportunity to live with these people who adore her. And it's a little bit awkward for her. And she starts to fall for that feeling. And then something disrupts the setting, which I'm not going to spoil for you. But it's very witchy. There are potions, there's magic, there's broomsticks. It was a really good feel good with some romance in it. I really enjoyed it. If you're looking for a light witchy read, I highly recommend it. And it ends with some fun twists. That's all I'm going to say. I like that you call it a light witchy read. Yeah. We're going to have all these subgenres and levels of witchiness in our right. book recommendations. Yeah, so I used this for one of my substitutions on my bingo card. Again, it's called The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. And it was a Goodreads Choice Award nominee for Best Fantasy in 2022. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I finished The Red Garden by Alice Hoffman. Woo, woo. Loved it. I love her writing so much. There's such a simplicity to it. It just goes down so easy. I don't know what it is. We were talking before we hit record about how beautiful her writing is and how she can evoke so much with so few words and just paint these scenes and feelings, you know, make you feel things. Love it so much. So The Red Garden, it's a series of short stories that are interconnected, more like vignettes maybe even about this town, Blackwell, Massachusetts, which is in the Berkshires, Western Massachusetts. It starts in like the 19th century with the town's founding pioneers who are heading west, and that's where they stop. And throughout the generations, you get different ancestors experiencing life with some nods to the past, and you see what's happening with things in the present that are threaded throughout the whole book. The Red Garden is this garden behind the house that was built by the founding family, and it's red, and it turns everything red. And why? Well, you'd have to read it to find out. We I don't can't even... tell you everything, people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really kind of cool because it starts with that, that first generation who are just you know having to create everything. And then it goes through time, through all the generations. You even have the Vietnam era and what goes on with descendants during that time period. And it ends in more contemporary times to us. I didn't want it to end, but it felt natural when it did. And there's no closure because it's this ongoing thing about the town, the people, the ancestors, the bears, the eels. Yeah, there's no closure because you know life just keeps going on, Mm -hmm. right? So she just hasn't written that part yet. (laughs) Right, and you can just, it sounds really kind of silly, but you can imagine it still going on. Yeah. Because she can create these characters that I just feel like are there, Mm kind of know them. Yeah. Yeah. So wonderful, wonderful. The Red Garden by Alice Hoffman. And this is the one that Alice Hoffman mentioned is not a prequel, to the Invisible Hour, but that if you read The Red Garden while you're reading The Invisible Hour, which is our next read-along book, you will see some flashes 
or as she called them Easter eggs. Yeah. She dropped some Easter eggs apparently in the invisible hour that you'll catch if you've read the red garden, but that doesn't mean that you won't appreciate the invisible hour having not read. Exactly. The red garden. It's kind of like reading Hester without having read the scarlet letter. Exactly. It'll add more, but it's still a great story without it. Right. Yeah. Well, my next witchy book was the witches of moonshine manor by Bianca Murray. We put out on our Goodreads group page a thread about which witchy books have you read. And two people mentioned this book. And, you know, we love Bianca. We had one of her books as one of our read-alongs. I had the arc and it kind of fell off my radar. I think I might have even tried starting in. It just wasn't the right time. I can't remember. But this time I read it both as an ebook and I listened to it as an audiobook with the narrator, Amy Landon, who did a great job. I went back and forth. It's about six geriatric witches. One of them is a ghost witch. <laughs> and then one of them has a familiar named Widget, who's a black crow. A familiar is like your little creature or it can be a thing. It depends on your witchcraft in Harry Potter. It was the owls, I think. And frogs. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it gets mentioned in the red garden too, that frogs were the big thing for a while. Okay. Yeah. But cats and yeah. Owls, a crow makes so. sense. Cause crows are so smart. Right. Yeah. And so the crow, the familiar is the, is for the tabby who is the witch that's a ghost. And so she communicates through her familiar, this crow. And then there's a greyhound dog named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> a young woman named Persephone shows up. And in modern times, she's into TikTok and magic. And she's president of the Critchley Hackle chapter of the Young Feminists of the World Association. So she's a budding feminist, which is why her dog is named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> It's an irreverent book. They are living in a manner. They get in a little financial trouble, and the patriarchy is coming to take their manner. And then there's also a heist that goes wrong. It's sexy. There's a grimoire, which is the book that witches use that have all of their magic spells and things like that. And in between chapters, there are little parts of the grimoire. So I thought I would just read one little bit. And this will give you an idea of how sexy the book is. <laughs> Moonshine Manor Grimoire, Jezebel's Candle Magic for Attracting a Lover, What You Will Need. One eight-inch pink pillar candle, one handful of fresh rose petals, one tablespoon of rose essential oil. And then there's a list of about six more essential oils. Equipment. A sharp knife to carve with. Small bowl as used for spices or soya sauce. Instructions. Carve your initials and astrological symbol on one side of the candle. Carve your love interest initials and astrological symbol on the other. If you cut yourself in the process, Ivy will tell you to put salve on the wound. Don't listen to her. A drop of blood will make the spell stronger. Pour all the essential oils into the small bowl. Tip the bowl over your palm to empty the oils onto it. Rub your palms together, coating them with the oil. Slather the oils up and down the shaft of the pink candle repeatedly. Sprinkle the fresh rose petals over the candle, getting them to stick to the sides. This is a messy business, but then so is love. Wash your hands thoroughly and light the candle. Let it burn all the way down as you pleasure yourself thinking of your lover. There's a lot of pleasuring yourself. 
There's a lot of proud of being a woman and also just this wonderful group of witches who are working together to grow old together. And then this young woman, Persephone, comes in via TikTok, helps them to solve some of their problems and things like that. It's very sweet. She wrote it over the course of the pandemic. I'm sure it was lovely for her to spend time with these characters while we were all hunkered down. Again, it's called The Witches of Moonshine Manor by Bianca Murray. Highly recommend if you're looking for just some laugh out loud fun, fun characters who you'll miss. I'm curious, like what's happening with them now? Awesome. I look forward to checking that out. (laughs) Well, I read two short stories. One was The Profile by Willa Cather. And then that was for the Willa Cather Short Story Project. And it's a story I hadn't read by her before, but it's one I heard a lot about because it caused a rift with her friendship that she had with Dorothy Canfield, later Fisher. The first trip that Cather took to Europe, she connected with Canfield over there. They had been friends in Nebraska. They connected in France where Dorothy Canfield was studying. And Dorothy introduced her to a friend who had a big burn on one side of her face. So she would only be photographed in profile. Years later, when Cather writes this story, and it's going to be included in her first collection of short stories, Dorothy Canfield hits the brake on that publication of that book and says, whoa, like this would devastate her to read this. And Cather's stance was, well, it's not about her. The character is nothing like her. Many people have burns on their faces or what have you. Long story short, Canfield was able to stop that story from being published in that collection. And then Cather eventually had it published in a magazine. So it's really interesting to think about the backstory of the story itself. And what would you do in that situation? I didn't know the woman involved. I read the story. I thought it was a pretty good story because it's about a painter who paints portraits, who falls in love with a woman who has a burn on half of her face. And he doesn't bring it up. They don't talk about it. They get married. They fall in love. Spoiler alert. And when he does mention it, it pretty much kind of ends the marriage. Mm. But Mm. then there's this young cousin who he falls in love with and eventually marries who also gets a burn on her face. Mm. And he's known for painting beautiful women in portrait. But at the very beginning of the story, it's about this lecture that's being given about painting and how the true subject of horror for a painter or for an artist is psychological, that if you're painting anything that's physical, that's just kind of grotesque. And it's only suited for the Huns and the Iroquois. So like, wow. It's an interesting story. It made me think of Hawthorne's story, The Birthmark, and other stories where people have some, quote, imperfection and what that does to people psychologically around that person. In some ways, this is a little bit of a fall horror story, more psychological than anything. And then the second short story I read was The Werewolf by Alma Katsu. This is an Amazon original that came out last year, 2022, 79 pages long. I've read a couple novels by her. I've enjoyed them very much. She writes historical horror, which I think is a really fascinating genre because one of Katsu's beliefs is that if we don't learn from history, we're obviously going to keep 
doing the same awful things. So this werewolf short story is set in Germany in 1945 towards the end of the war. And the Brothers Grimm are brought in and their stories and all those stories they collected from the deep forests of Germany and the cruel, awful things that happened and stories of werewolves and things. So the Walpurgis Night is just something that's mentioned in there, as is the Grimm Brothers stories. It's really focused on this one character and his struggle to do the right thing. He hasn't been off fighting in World War II because his dad died in World War I. So he was able to stay and help his mom since she was a widow and had the one son. So he hasn't been fighting in the war. Rumor has it the American allies are coming. There's been a Russian soldier found. So time is running out. And a lot of the people in town were not necessarily supportive of the Nazi regime. Some were. Some are not making good choices, and then this werewolf situation comes up. The focus is very much on the werewolf and doing the right thing, and that can be a complicated thing sometimes. As Alma says, the main lesson history has to teach us is that it's easy to slip the skin of humanity and become a monster. That's a quote from her. So good story, a good werewolf story with an important humanity message. I don't want to say too much about this one since it's a relatively new story. I thought it was really fascinating how she brought in Nazi plans with historical events and then this mythological folklore history with a contemporary horror twist to it. Hmm. Really cool. And there's even some witchy stuff in it. So I can put this one on my bingo card. There's a Walpurgis Night which is the end of April, May 1st, when bonfires were created to help keep away witches, to help cleanse from witchcraft. And that is based on St. Walpura, a woman who supposedly was the patron saint of driving out witches and other things. She was born in the year 710 AD, right? And she died somewhere between like 777 and 779. Why are those numbers hard to say? Because they're not years. They don't seem like years, right? So, but yeah, she was born in England and was a missionary in Germany and got associated with helping people be saved from witchcraft. So, Mm. werewolves and witchcraft. Wow. Really good story. So, again, that was The Profile by Willa Cather and then The Werewolf by Alma Katsu. Two really engaging short stories. And reminder, Chris is doing the Willa Cather short story project. It's ongoing. You can follow her on chriswolak.com, and I will put that in the show notes. Thanks. Well, the next book we both just read is Hester by Lori Lico Albanez. At the end of this episode, we have a lovely conversation with her. What a compelling book. What a compelling author. And the way that she decided to write the book is really compelling. So we hope you stick around for that conversation. This is a read along book. So we are going to have some spoilers. If you haven't read the book yet, you might want to fast forward through this. I don't think we give anything away. But we do talk a little bit more in depth about the book. Yeah, than we normally would. Yeah. We're going to give you a quick synopsis about the book and what we thought of it. This is the second book in our Scarlet Summer. So excited to have read it after reading The Scarlet Letter. Yes, very much so. It's the story of Hester Prynne from Hester's point of view and what happened. 
not what happened in the Scarlet Letter, but kind of the origin story for Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Right. Because one of the things that Lori says in her author notes is that for Hawthorne's other novels, they can see where the inspiration came from. They know where the inspiration came from, but they don't really know about The Scarlet Letter. So it was kind of fun to look at creating the origin of that. It's a woman who is coming from Scotland, and it's set in 1829. The Scarlet Letter was published in 1850, so... And took place in the 1600s, right? right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say, as someone who did listen to the audiobook and read the print, the audiobook does not have the acknowledgments in it and her author note. So if you've listened to the audiobook only, you might want to get your hands on it, because I thought the acknowledgments were really important in the author note, like you're talking about her inspiration for reading Scarlet Letter and writing Hester. You know, it surprised me because I expected it to just be the Scarlet Letter retold from the perspective of Hester. And so I thought this was so fascinating because Laurie talks about part of the inspiration is there is this time period in Hawthorne's life where he has graduated from college and he was quite the rambunctious partier in college. So it wouldn't have surprised her if he had had an affair of some kind and that's why he was feeling guilt. Whereas people think his guilt came only from his family's involvement in the witch trials, he could have had another reason for guilt. Who knows? We don't know at this point. No yeah. one has found those letters yet. Yes. <laughs> Keep looking in your attics, people. Well, and she talks about how a lot of his journals and letters were burned. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That, you know. And we read that too somewhere when we were in Concord that when the family was moving to England, when he got that position, he burnt a lot of both he and his wife's letters and journals. Yeah. So, so who knows? Yeah. Maybe it was because they didn't have space in their suitcase. Maybe it was for another reason. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so it's set in 1829, which is fascinating. It's a young woman who comes from Scotland, and she meets Hawthorne. We've talked about that portrait of him before, that painting in his younger days where he just looks so romantic and dashing and very handsome. That's the age that the character meets Hawthorne. And, and he's dark and brooding. Who isn't attracted to that, unfortunately? He's a writer, and <laughs> yeah, and she's alone because yeah. her husband, as soon as they get there, he ships off on another journey. So she is alone in Salem. Which you can see how this emulates the ideas that are in the Scarlet Letter. Yes, and it's not like she, Lori, follows the Scarlet Letter to a T, but if you've read the Scarlet Letter recently, you'll you'll be like, oh yeah, okay, I can see that that's where she's doing this and that, but there's so much more that she brings into the novel about what was going on in the United States in the 1820s, 30s, that will be fascinating for students of American history, I think. Yeah, the novel really surprised me. Did it surprise you? Mm -hmm, it did. Yeah, it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. Like I said, I really thought it was going to be a retelling. I was captivated by it. The audiobook is fantastic. I went back and forth. And the the feeling you get of this young immigrant that's on her own, left to her own devices, and she's trying to make a go of it. And she's a seamstress. That's one of the things that's part of the Scarlet Letter. And Lori really focuses on that in Hester. And I really enjoyed that part of the novel. Yeah, it was really fun. And there's interstitial 
stuff yes. in the novel. We've been talking about that the last couple episodes, you know, small interludes between chapters that give you a little knowledge of what has happened in the past. And it's not a dual timeline thing at all. It's just little knowledge of past. So you get to see what her life was like back in Scotland, some of the things with her ancestors and yeah. so on. Really yeah. well done, I thought. Yeah. Really well done. And Lori talks about her writing process in the interview. Yeah. So happy we picked this one. Yes. In our next read-along conversation on September 10th, we will be in part talking about the Scarlet Letter, Hester movies, although the main focus will be on... The Invisible Hour. Yeah. Yeah, by Alice Hoffman. Yeah, so I mean, there's so much is packed in the novel about what women were experiencing from the 1600s through to 1829. So Isabel is the main character, and the man that she's married to is older, as in the Scarlet Letter. He's also an apothecary. And he's addicted to poppy. Yeah. And there's just a little line in there about how when it came to women who were in trouble, he would help unwed women get an abortion, but never married women. And when I read that, I just thought about something you mentioned in a recent episode that a lot of women who want an abortion are already married with children and they just can't afford another one. Or understand the work involved or they know it's not a good time for the rest of their family. Exactly. That's just a fascinating point in there about, you know, why, mm -hmm. you know, and just the attitudes about abortion. Yeah. And assumptions that people make and stereotypes and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the witchy aspect of this book comes into play because Isabel, the main character, has synesthesia which Lori also talks about in our conversation. But that is something that she mentions in the very beginning of the book. And it's a really interesting way that she brings in this notion that Isabel might be touched by a spirit or by witchcraft. And I really appreciated that. I thought that was a really brilliant way to weave, pun intended, because it has <laughs> a lot to do with her embroidery and everything. Right. The idea of witchcraft you know, which is something that's also part of Hawthorne's history as yes. a family. Yeah, really good. Very intricate. Well done. And I can't wait to go to Salem next week and walk around some of the places mentioned in the book. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by The Brickworks by Lucy Black. When the Tay Bridge collapsed in 1879, it killed everyone on the train leaving the son of the driver, Brody Smith, traumatized. In search of adventure, Brody travels to Buffalo, where he befriends Alastair, another young Scot filled with dreams and ambitions. Together, the men establish a brickworks. Told in beautifully crafted prose, it is Black's incomparable voice, her uncanny humor, and an astonishing ear for dialogue that renders the brickworks both remarkable and unforgettable. The Brickworks by Lucy Black publishes on October 15th and is available for pre-order now. Check the show notes for details. So Biblio Adventures, we had a huge joint jaunt. We did an overnight to Lenox Mass. Oh my gosh, so fun. So much fun. Yeah, so our first stop in the Berkshires was finding the Little Red Cottage 
where Hawthorne and his family lived. It's a recreation of the original, right? Because the original burnt down. Yeah, the original little house burnt in the late 19th century, and then it was rebuilt, I think, twice. Yeah. You know, based on pictures of the original or sketches. So it was neat to find that. It's right outside one of the gates of Tanglewood. Um, On Hawthorne Road or Hawthorne Drive. I can't remember. what I think it was Hawthorne Road. Yeah. Yeah. And so we took a nice little hike, too. The house is not open to the public. We took a walk around a path that went all the way into the woods and got chewed on by mosquitoes again. And (laughs) it was wonderful, though, to be in the environment. That's where they moved right after The Scarlet Letter came out. And The Scarlet Letter was a good success, but it didn't give him the financial boost that the family was hoping for. So they were living at the Red Cottage on someone else's dime. Yeah, they did that. We've now been to Concord where they lived rent-free in the old manse and the the little house in Lenox where they lived rent-free. So he had patrons that helped (laughs) support him just as we do. (laughs) Yes. And that was because of his wife. His wife knew somebody who was married to a wealthy man. And she said, come on up, you know, come up to this area. And so that's in part how they ended up there. It's Stockbridge, the town next to Lenox, but Hawthorne would walk every day two miles from the cottage to Lenox, two miles there, two miles back to pick up the mail, and he grabbed other people's mail as well. So we did a little Googling on the map just to see, like, what would that walk look like? Yeah, because we were wondering, would he have been able to walk as the crow flies? You know, like now we, of course, take roads that are built and things like that. So it was really fun to imagine him there, right. you know, and really following in his footsteps, literally. Right. And I read uh, parts of his American notebooks that he had written while he was living at the Red Cottage. And there was one scene where he and his son walk to get the mail and they're coming back. And he hops a fence, and they're sitting in a field, and he's reading the newspapers when somebody on horseback greets him in Spanish, and he just kind of tips his hat, and the man keeps talking to him, and he looks up, and he realizes, oh, it's Melville. So (laughs) I do think that's lovely. So Herman Melville was in the neighborhood, and they put the son on the horse, and then the two men walk back to Hawthorne's home where Melville stayed for a bit. He was an overnight guest frequently, and I think Hawthorne stayed at his place as well a couple times. But it's just fun to imagine these two 19th century writers having this very human interaction. Yeah, and I have to say we were um, joking about looking for the ghost of Hawthorne, and we were standing out in front of the house to take a picture, and we noticed that the curtain in the top left-hand side of the house started to flutter. Seriously, and the window wasn't open. No. So, you know, he was just... Tipping his hat to us, maybe. (laughs) And then we got in the car and drove back to town to Lenox, had a beautiful lunch at a pizza place, stopped in the bookstore there called The Bookstore, which there's a documentary about that bookstore, which we'll put in the show notes. Beautiful documentary about that bookstore weathering the pandemic. And then we went to the Mount. Yeah, Edith Wharton's home, her writer's retreat in the Berkshires, which... (laughs) It's interesting to think about it that way. We had never done the tour before, so we took one of the tours and really enjoyed it and learned so much, a.k.a. that it was considered a writer's retreat. It wasn't a home built for grand entertaining. It was really a place to get away from it all. 
Yeah, and I have to say the woman that led the tour, I think her name was Jan. She did just the right amount of giving you some information, particularly things that you wouldn't necessarily notice, but also just the right amount. So after the tour was over, you wanted to go back to the rooms and do some more exploring on your own. Yes. And one of the things that people often don't know about Wharton is that she wrote about architecture. Her first book was actually a nonfiction book on architecture. And so Jan pointed out some really cool architectural features of the house. And I really appreciated that. And I wouldn't have noticed because there's so much to look at. Yeah. And some of it is optical illusions Mm -hmm. because Wharton was a firm believer in symmetry. Mm -hmm. And there are things within a house that you can't always make symmetrical. But from the outside, you might want it to look that way. So that was really fun. Yeah. And going on right now at the Mount through October, I believe, is an outdoor sculpture garden, which is really beautiful. The grounds are beautiful already, especially this time of year. The flowers are beautiful. There's fountains. But then they've added to this with this organization called Sculpture Now. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And there are these fantastic sculptures. One of them is a deer Right, like so, a, oh, an elk, it's an elk, yeah. elk that has a big vine tree growing through it. That's just gorgeous. And we then took a video in this other sculpture that's a box that you can step into. It's open on two sides, so you don't get claustrophobic at all. But it has these little pieces of metal strung on wire all around it that move and shimmer and make a sound when the wind blows. So beautiful. Yeah, and Chris made an amazing video of our two days in Lenox, and we posted that on our YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then maybe we'll throw it in our newsletter, our August newsletter. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, so we had lunch on the terrace, just wonderful. We did a little shopping in the bookstore. And then we spent the night. Yes, we spent the night in town. And the next day we connected with Ninke, the librarian at the Mount, we had asked her if we could see a couple books we were interested in that we had heard Wharton had. One of them was this copy of Ulysses. And Ninke was so happy because she says, no one has asked to see this yet. <laughs> so she was really happy that we were interested in seeing this copy. And Wharton was not a fan of Ulysses, although she did admire James Joyce's work. She thought that Ulysses was pretty much just schoolboy pornography was a direct quote of what she thought of it. But this copy was from Walter Berry's, her very dear friend, and he passed away. When he passed away, he had given his library to someone else but said, Edith gets first pick of whatever she wants. And one of the books she chose was that copy of Ulysses. It was one of the pre-publication thousand copies that were printed for Joyce's birthday. This was number 400 and something out of those. And why did she take it? They don't really know why she chose that book. Did it mean something to him and she knew it? Did she not want people to know he had it? (laughs) Did she just know it was a valuable book? Yeah, we we did a lot of hypothesizing with Ninke. Like I was like, well, maybe... You know, they argued about it a lot, and that was a nice memory for her. Right. Who knows? Exactly, right? What does a book mean to somebody? You just don't know unless they've told you, right? Right. So that was really cool to see. Yeah. And then what is sitting right there? So we're talking with Ninke, and all of a sudden I look down, and I'm like, no way. What is sitting on the table but Dante? 
Dante Anna Doily. All three books of the Divine Comedy, each canto in its own little book. And we're like, no way. And Ninke said, yeah, that was out because there was an Italian scholar here looking at Wharton's Dante and some other Italian books because Wharton read the Divine Comedy in Italian. But the copies that were sitting there on the desk were Longfellow's translation. Which is what Chris is reading, which yeah. is amazing. Bizarre. Yeah. So bizarre. And you know it's an influential text, but if you're not paying attention, you just don't realize like how much it is still out there. Yeah. And it was written hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And here we are talking about it. As we were walking around the house, they did have a lot of Hawthorne books sitting on desks and things like that, which is really fun. Yeah. There was this series that Hawthorne's son, Julian Hawthorne, had edited or helped publish of all of Hawthorne's works. And so that was really cool. There are books in literally every room. Yeah. Even the bathroom at the Mount, because books were so important to Wharton from a young age. She was always a big reader and then obviously a writer. Yeah. And wasn't there a copy of the book that he wrote? The Marble Fawn. Yeah. Yeah, really. It was so cool to see that. We also ran into Anne, who is the director of visitor services, and got to chat with her a little bit. And she asked us what's been going on with us. So we told her about Scarlet Summer. And she's like, oh, a summer book is Summer by Edith Wharton, which Anne told us Wharton called it her hot Ethan Frome. Because <laughs> Ethan Frome is a book that's set in the deepest winter. Right. And then Summer is said in summer so we both have copies of summer to read sometime soon yes and then we ended the evening which was part of our impetus for going was that stacy schiff was there in conversation with andre bernard and they were talking about her most recent book which is called the revolutionary but he did a really good job as an interviewer of actually talking to her about all of her works. It was really well done. Yeah. I mean, he's such a talented interviewer to kind of meander throughout all of her subjects. And they're so wide ranging. Yeah, it was an impressive feat. And I was really glad because I was expecting that it would just be the most recent, which would have been fine. You exactly. Know? Right. Yeah. yeah. But they had this wonderful big tent set up and it was pretty full and what she had to say about witches, her book that's been on some of our minds this year, this summer, I should say, and why she was interested in writing about it when it is a story that's been told so many times. And her reason for starting to research into it was that this was one of the first big injustices in the United States of America before right. it was a country even. Yeah, the way she phrased it is it was a miscarriage of justice. And she was really interested in that. And I think we've talked about the book on the podcast already that some of the reviews aren't very kind about this book. And they talk about how she kind of went on and on and on about the trials and the trials. And after listening to her, it made sense to me that that's what she wanted to focus on, because she felt like the trials were the part that were interesting to her and hadn't been written about really. And she really dove into the archives and mm -hmm. dug deep. Yeah. So it's probably one of those books that's great documentation for a lot of people who might want to springboard into other avenues of it. Because I think when people hear the witch trials, they want the drama. Right. They want that compelling story. And she's telling it from a very different level. Yeah. 
Yeah. She also talked about how in 1970, the town of Salem re-embraced its witchiness because the show Bewitched was filmed there, which I thought was funny. That was just a little aside. Yeah, totally. Because no one talked about it. Yeah. No one talked about it. Yeah. And she talked about how many descendants there are of the families on both sides, people who were accused, people who were executed, people who were the condemners and judges. Lucille Ball was one of the descendants of the witches. Yeah, and she was very funny. And I think she said something quippy, like, which is why she has red hair, even though it's not real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Lucille Ball said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stacey didn't say that. (laughs) Right, right, yes. (laughs) No, I mean, but really, I mean, Stacey Schiff does have a great sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was wonderful. And I want to read all of her books. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. She was a very compelling person, very sweet, very funny. And he was a great interviewer. So I'm so glad we stuck around for that. It was a great couple of days. We highly recommend spending some time up there. Beautiful place. It'd be so pretty in the fall. Yes. And we'll be going back in the winter, I think, as our, our next plan. We have a project in mind. But we did end the day with a hike at Monument Mountain. We were planning on going to the peak because it's just like two, three miles. It's not, well, there are like two different routes you could take. It's a big loop if you want it to be. And we started out and it was kind of that, you know, twilight time was setting and the mosquitoes were out. We came upon couple trees that were down really recent they were still very green that fell on the path and we thought well we're going to take this as a sign yeah just to head back to the car because we were getting chewed on again and then we ran into someone who did make it to the peak and she said it's you really have to go on all fours and scrabble (laughs) up to the top and i was like yeah i think we made the right choice she sounds like you have to do some bouldering up there (laughs) she's like i'm glad i didn't bring my kids because that (laughs) wouldn't have been pretty yeah so good time The Lennox Mass. Highly recommend it. Yeah, great area. So much to do. And I had a couch biblio adventure. I started Slow Horses, a new series on Apple TV. It's based on the series by Mick Heron called the Slough House series. This is published by our friends over at Soho Crime. I know Juliet Grames loves Mick Heron in this series. And there's eight books in the series. And the first one is called Slow Horses, which is why the series is called Slow Horses. And it's about a group of defunct MI5 spies led by Jackson Lamb, played by an irascible Gary Oldman. Oh my God, he's so good in it. Wow. Yeah. And fun fact, the theme of the show is sung by Mick Jagger, who's a big fan of the book series. That's kind of fun. I think I've watched one and a half episodes, and it's that classic British thing where it's six episodes from start to finish, which I really like. So I have that to look forward to. Very cool. Yeah. That's great. Well, I went to Chicago for that quick trip that we mentioned, and we went to Galena, Illinois, which is all the way up in like the northwest corner of the state, really out there. And it's known for being one of the most complete 19th century towns. It was a very thriving town back in the day when rivers were the main mode of transportation before the railroads came in. And it was also the home of uh, President Grant, gorgeous town. Laura and I used to spend a lot of time up there. We'd rent this cabin every year for her birthday. So a lot of fun. And there was a bookstore this time, Galena Book and Paper. 
And that wasn't there before. And of course, we went in and I asked the owner, you know, how long have you been here? And he said, just about three years. So it's a newer store. He said there used to be a bookstore in town, but it had closed a very long time ago. And honestly, I don't remember a bookstore being there when I'd been in the past, but you know, who knows? You know how memory is. Yeah. But I had a really wonderful browse. I asked the bookseller, who was the owner, and I'm sorry I didn't get his name, what was selling well that summer. And he pointed to a couple things, a couple I'd read, a couple I'd heard about already, but two that were new to me. And one is A Death in Door County by Annalise Ryan. It's a monster hunter mystery. So it's about a woman who hunts mythological monsters. She owns a bookstore. It's in Door County, Wisconsin. Beautiful area. So I picked that up. And then the other one he pointed out was a witch book, which I was like, no way. But of course, right? <laughs> um, everyone knows your mother is a witch. This is by Rivka Gelchin. And it's a, kind of based on a true story that happened in 1618 in Germany, dealing with a woman who was accused of being a witch. Hmm. And Margaret Atwood blurbed it. So I look forward to digging into that. And then one I found on my own there, I couldn't resist, was Seven Kinds of People You Find in Bookshops by Sean Bythel. <laughs> and he's a Scottish bookseller. And the introduction is really funny because he's a bit like saying, you know, here I am in this business that makes no money, that will never make any money. And I'm going to be writing about customers who are the few that do spend money here and alienating them. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of like in a nutshell what he said. So I liked his humor. So um, those are the ones I went home with. We saw a really cool little free library there. It looked like a little firehouse, and it's owned and operated by a retired firefighter. It's amazing. I did take two books, A Mystery for My Sister, and then I could not resist. There was a copy of The Library by Susan Orlean. Like, what better book for a firefighter to have than that book? Because it's about that big L.A. public library fire yeah. that happened. But um, I got that one from my mom. She Perfect. hasn't read that. And then we did spend a day in Chicago. I saw another gorgeous little free library that was looking like a little tiny castle that was wonderful. And then um, went by the bookseller, which is a really great independent bookstore in Lincoln Square neighborhood. So it was wonderful to be back. And it was great to be at two sides of the state because, you know, Chicago is on the northeast side and then Galena on the other side. So if you are in northern Illinois or southern Wisconsin, check out Galena. It's a lot of fun. You covered some territory. You were only gone a few days. It's impressive. Yeah, it was fun. Well, a good thing we all like a road trip. Yeah. And the drive out to Galena is just gorgeous because it's through farmland. Mm. As you get closer to Galena, it gets really hilly because it's river country. So it's just so beautiful. Nice. Yeah, I, there was a scenic overlook at one point, and I posted a photo of the three of us. One person said, looks like a fake background because it's so amazing. It, yeah. it does. It looks like a, a painting almost. It's so beautiful. Nice. Thank you to Melissa, who recommended on Goodreads that we put a thread in for you to tell us about your Biblio adventures. So we added a thread on our Goodreads group page. Please stop by if you're on Goodreads and tell us where you're going on your Biblio adventures, what you're doing, tell us the state you're in. 
We'd really love to hear about it and give us some ideas for future Biblio adventures. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's one more Biblio adventure we have to mention, and that is that Emily was a guest over on Sean the Book Maniac's booktube channel. They were talking about polygamous reading, reading multiple books at the same time. And I enjoyed your conversation very much and got a big chuckle when Sean talked about Emily's harem of books (laughs) (laughs) it was really fun it was really nice of him to invite me and it's funny ever since that conversation i've been reading more polygamously yesterday i read three different books and i was like oh my god this is exactly what i was talking to sean about and i don't think i realized i did it as much i don't think i used to do it as much i think it's a newer thing for me so many books yes (laughs) well and it's nice to have the change of pace yeah. It is from minute to minute if we need yes, it, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Upcoming jaunts. We have an exciting jaunt continuing our Scarlet Summer. We're going to Salem, Mass next week. Yes, next Wednesday. We'll be there on the 30th. So if you're in the neighborhood, reach out. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. It's going to be action packed. It's a longer drive for us. So we're going to leave really early and we're going to packing a lot in one day. We're not going to spend the night. We're putting together our itinerary now. Yeah, there are a bunch of things we want to see. Obviously, the House of the Seven Gables. We have addresses for different homes that Hawthorne lived in, and we understand one of the homes has been moved to the location of where the House of the Seven Gables is, which was also moved, from what I understand. We're hoping to do some walking around and looking at the actual sites the locations of where these homes were and what it was like to be Hawthorne or Sophia walking through town. The custom house. Mm -hmm. And then maybe some things from Hester as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we'll walk along the wharf. The Peabody Museum won't be open. They're closed on Wednesdays, but we'll get to walk by. And yeah, I've been to Salem before and just enjoyed walking around so much because it's such an old city. It's just so gorgeous to just walk around and be in that atmosphere. And this is going to be my first time. I'm a newbie, so I'm looking forward to it. And then we're also going to go on a joint jaunt. September 8th through 9th, there's a popular romance fiction conference right here at Yale. Yeah, New Haven, Connecticut. It's free of charge. We both just registered. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can learn more. There's some heavy hitters coming. We're really excited. Roxanne Gay is going to be there. Sarah McLean's going to be there. Radcliffe is going to be there. Beverly Jenkins. They're going to show a documentary about romance. It should be just a really good time. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Totally looking forward to it. Upcoming reads. It's going to be all about the Invisible Hour by Alice Hoffman for me. Coming Out up. now, just published last week, and we're really excited about it. This is the final book in our Scarlet Summer reminder about the Zoom conversation on September 10th. We'll be focusing on this book, but also talking about the Scarlet Letter and Hester. And oh. any other movies, if you've watched movies. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's the uh, the final book. It seems like we were planning it for so long, it seems weird that it's here, but it's I'm excited. Unreal. I can't. I also feel like... It's taken great willpower, which I'm not famous for, <laughs> to have this book in my possession for so long and not read it. So cannot wait. Yeah, to read that I had thoughts of taking it to Chicago, but then I thought I'm going to be running around so much that I'd rather just save it for when I got home and could 
have my evenings dedicated to it. Yeah. And in the out now category, The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush, Come With Me by Aaron Flanagan, who we spoke to on episode 188, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, and The Breakaway by Jennifer Weiner. Well, coming up next is our conversation with Lori Lico Albanese. We hope you enjoy. Happy, Happy reading. reading. We're excited to welcome Lori Lico Albanese to the Book Cougars. Lori's new novel, Hester, is part of our Scarlet Summer. Fiona Davis has called Hester a masterpiece that should be required reading alongside Hawthorne's classic tale. Lori's other books include two novels, Linnell by the Sea and Stolen Beauty. She co-authored the novel The Miracles of Prado with Laura Morowitz, and her creative memoir, Blue Suburbia, Almost a Memoir, was written in free verse. Lori's nonfiction books include Resumes for Successful Women, A Burlitz Guide to Chicago, and with Eleanor Winters, Calligraphy and Ten Easy Lessons. And we've heard that pickleball is one of Lori's new obsessions, so we're hoping to get some tips about that. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here with you two. You really did a lot of research into my past. That's the... (laughs) (laughs) She grew up on Long Island. She went to York University. (laughs) Well, speaking about your past, in the acknowledgments you talk about your experiences reading The Scarlet Letter, you started by reading it in ninth grade, where you really identified with the character Pearl and then had the opportunity to reread it when both of your children or one or both of your kids were reading it in school and found out, wow, that Hester Prynne, she's kind of a badass single mom. And we're really drawn to her as a character. So how did reading The Scarlet Letter twice inspire you to write the novel, Hester? Oh, great question. So yes, it's true. When I was in high school, I wrote my first paper about symbolism, And it was about the Scarlet Letter. And I focused on Pearl, who's always in the moonlight. You know, everything associated with her is something sort of dark and mysterious. And then um, when my kids were reading it in high school, I have a daughter and then a son. um, You know, I looked at it in a whole new light. I was a more savvy reader. I looked at it. Is this a feminist story or is this a proto-feminist story? And then the truth is that after I finished my last book, Stolen Beauty, I was looking for an idea that was sort of blow my head, my own head out of the water. And my husband's in publishing. And so we were walking in the park and I just came up with the idea, like, what if there was a real Hester Prynne? What if there was or what if who was Hester Prynne? And what if she could tell her own story? So then, of course, I went back to the book and I reread it or, you know, opened it up again and realized that since your readers and you guys just read The Scarlet Letter, the narrator is a proto Hawthorne, right? The story is told by a male narrator. And even though, you know, Hester is the person upon whom all the plot points occur, and she's the main character, you really never hear from her in her own voice, almost never, right? And even if you did, it's filtered through your proto-narrator and your male writer. So I just thought it was a great opportunity right now because I like to write about women having their say, women being brought to the forefront of a story and given the opportunity to speak not from the margins, that she was an interesting 
creation and that I wanted to explore her. Mm, that's great. And we should let listeners know that since this is a read-along book, there might be some spoilers along the way. So if you haven't finished Hester yet, you might want to fast forward or, or listen to this later, but we usually don't drop any heavy spoilers. So talking about you know this being inspired by Hawthorne's novel, there are some similarities, you know, with how Hawthorne created the artifact that he found, that the narrator found, and, yeah. you know, that that prompted his story. And then you have the Scarlet Letter that prompted your story. You know, how did you think about the structure for your novel? Did you play around with different types of structures or did it kind of come to you? <laughs> no, it seems each book I write is a little bit harder, but I, I love what you, the, what you just pointed out, Chris, which is that there's an extensive meta in the story. First, you start out with the novel, which was published in 1850. And the novel is actually a historical novel, which he sets in the 1600s. And even then, he, the narrator, Hawthorne, creates this fabrication of a piece of embroidery that he found at his place of work, which was Hawthorne's real place of work, which was the custom house. So he starts with an invented piece of embroidery. And my book actually ends with an invented tapestry, right? So, which is not a plot spoiler. Somebody's sewing a tapestry. So when I first started the book, I didn't really know. I thought, well, maybe I would write it as if Hester were really alive in Boston in, you know, 1670 or so when the book is actually set. And I very quickly decided I didn't want to do that because Puritan times are gray and Hawthorne had already done it. So I played around with untold narrative structures, narrative points of view, narrative timelines. At one point, I thought maybe Pearl would be telling the story. I thought maybe I would have a dual time frame story. And then finally, I started researching Nathaniel Hawthorne himself. And I realized that he's fascinating, right? He's so deep. He's so complex. And I just thought, well, everybody knows it's been said throughout the last 200 years that Hawthorne carried guilt, but nobody knows really what his guilt was about. It's ascribed to a lot of things, which we can talk about later. But I thought, well, why wouldn't he have this handsome guy? Sorry, we can't show a picture. But when he was in his early 30s, he was devastatingly handsome, at least in the one paint portrait of him. Why wouldn't he have had a lover, right? And she wouldn't have been a lover because when you read these this time frame, you'd think no one ever had sex. But then when you look at the history behind the history, plus you know what life is like, you know people were. And so why wouldn't he have had a lover who was not in his social milieu, right? And that's when I got the idea to create a woman who comes from across the sea, just like in the Scarlet Letter, Hester's come from England. But I chose Scotland because I had just watched Outlander. <laughs> 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 and I just, um, I shouldn't say I'd read Outlander, um, and I just loved all the magical qualities of a Scottish tale. So I made her Scottish, and I worked on this voice for two years before I found the right voice, which is very important for me to remind myself because I've been working on the voice of my current novel for about a year, and I still haven't exactly found the voice. So that's my journey. It's a messy. It's a little bit exasperating. <laughs> well, no, that's great because I've just been reading Outlander for the first time. I'm a couple books in and I've watched the, the TV series as well. So that was a really cool connection for me. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. 
and those who are really into like Scottish folklore and things like that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more? Like, what what do you mean? What is your process in finding Hester's voice? I don't know how deep in the woods you're willing to go with that, but I think listeners might be fascinated by that. I know I am. Yeah. I mean, my process is that I always think I have the voice. And so I write and then I send the pages to my agent and my agent is like, Mm-mm. <laughs> so then I go <laughs> back and try something else. I mean, I actually had a present day narrator at one point, or I had an artist who was going to sort of find a piece of fabric. So when I say my process, what I really mean is, you know, right now, because I just had surgery, I have not been working the double knee replacement for listeners, um, not for the faint of heart. But so you take these painkillers. So for a month, I haven't really been working. But usually I write every day. It's my job. And so I do sit down and create pages every day. And then I edit them and I I polish them and I think about the structure of the story. And then it doesn't pan out or I show to a reader because I have a lot of beta readers and people are like, yeah this is a little dull. So I just go back to the drawing board is truly how it goes. I like to write first person. I've learned that. And usually the process will be something like, well, who is telling the story? Like the key question for a writer, once you know all your other things is who's telling the story from what distance to whom and why? So when I finally, in the back of my mind, oh, Margaret Fuller, at one point, the early American transcendental feminist Margaret Fuller, there has always been a school of thought that she inspired Hawthorne to write The Scarlet Letter because she drowned in 1850. The book is published in 1850. So I spent a lot of time having Margaret Fuller and Nathaniel Hawthorne being intimate together. I did a year of research on Margaret Fuller. I wrote the novel with Margaret Fuller meeting Nathaniel Hawthorne, which they really did. They met at a um, utopian community called Brooks Farm. And they also knew each other in New England social circles. And I just couldn't make them have sex. I just couldn't believe it. So there was like a year into my story and I was like, get in bed. But they, I couldn't do it. And when I say I couldn't do it, I just mean I didn't believe it. It's not like I had a writer's block or anything. Like I'm, I was, there's a certain responsibility that I hope I never have to take on again, but that I have taken on with my book because I'm now writing Margaret Fuller. You have a certain responsibility to the truth. Margaret Fuller was America's famous virgin until she went over to Italy and took an Italian lover. So I just couldn't do it to her. And then I was like, well, wait, Margaret Fuller is going to have a baby. How's that going to work? So the process, when I say I have a very wide ranging imagination, you put it on paper until you know it's not working. And then you just ask yourself another question. And my question for this was in the back of my mind, I always thought the real Hester Prynne might have been a working class Scottish woman. And that's what I did in the end. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. The Margaret Fuller thing, that would have been tricky because I would have thought, oh, I think Margaret would have known better. Like he's <laughs> he's cute, but he's awful moody. And, yeah, you know. exactly. Although <laughs> not, Margaret, not worth it. <laughs> Margaret had a bad taste in men. I mean, she mm. kept falling for not, you know, she kept falling for men. Well, I don't know if she had bad taste in men, but she kept falling for men who were not worthy of her or ready for her, 
you know. So oh, there's an age old story. <laughs> my next novel is my next novel. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. oh my That's gosh. That's so cool. That's exciting. I love Margaret Fuller. I can't wow. wait for that. Yeah. Good. I'm giving it a twist, though. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. So we'd like to ask you about synesthesia. Oh, yeah. You open the novel talking about synesthesia. Can you talk about what it is and how you came up with the idea of synesthesia kind of incorporated into the embroidery work that happens in the novel? Sure. So yeah, I'm really happy to talk about synesthesia. So when I was writing the book, I was rereading parts of the Scarlet Letter, right? And if you look, and since you just read it, you can see it for yourself. When you look at the descriptions that Hawthorne has given to Hester Prynne's embroidery, it's remarkable, right? Nobody can get over it. It's very complex. It's very beautiful. And I started thinking about what made her work so spectacular that even though she had been canceled and pushed out of her community, people still went to her and paid her for her work, even though every single person knew how to sew in her time. So what made her work so extraordinary? I just sort of drilled down into that and I thought, well, maybe she's psychotic and has visions. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. So then I had worked with a young woman who had synesthesia. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Oh, what is synesthesia? So synesthesia is when you have a neurodivergence where you will experience an intermingling of sensory input. So people with synesthesia might see, as in as in um, Hester, might see colors associated with letters, or they might see colors associated with sound. Kandinsky, the painter, saw color when he listened to music. And that's why his paintings look like music, because they are. Lady Gaga you know, now says she has synesthesia. Billie Eilish, the musician, Baudelaire, the poet, had synesthesia. At the time when the book is set, 1829, really no one knew what synesthesia was. So I gave it to my character, Isabel, as something that she would experience as perhaps from the devil. As many things were experienced, like if you had epilepsy, right, you were possessed by the devil. And so I gave it to her so that I gave it to Isabel so that she could see the most spectacular things so that there could be, number one, a secret that she had to keep, right? Because, and in the end, what I loved about it is that it's her gift that is a curse and her curse that is a gift. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, and I love the scene. I think it's chapter 27 after this is a little spoilery, everybody, but after she's been sewing gloves, and it's supposed to be a secret and the shop owner who's been selling her work, Felicity, cancels her essentially. And then slowly people start knocking on her door, you know, yeah, and then she can support herself, which is something that is also really important about what the embroidery and sewing is for her, that it gives her a way to support herself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good point. You know, when I started out, when I finally, you know, zeroed in on to this character and this time setting, 
I thought, well, what does this character want, right? And this character wants to have a dress shop. And that seemed to me as a 21st century woman, like maybe that wasn't a big enough feminist enough ambition. But then I did a lot of reading into industry and women who had their own businesses in that time period. And that was a very forward feminist thing to do, to have your own business, to have the ambition to have your own business. And so, yes, this becomes the vehicle to her independence. There's a book by Rosika Parker called The Subversive Stitch is 1970s uh, second wave feminism that really addresses all these questions about the link between autonomy, women's work, industrialization, post-industrialization. And so I don't think that research shows, but I think those ideas underpin some of the movement in the book that people feel when they experience her as a feminist when they experienced Isabel Gamble as a feminist in 1829. Yeah, and one of the things you make really clear is just how much accusations of witchcraft are made against women in particular when they're different, Mm -hmm. when they step out of line. And and Isabel comes from this long matrilineal line of women who are named Margaret, alternating her name. So I was interested in the amount of research that you did It's pretty clear from your author's note. How did you keep everything organized? Or do you write as you go as you're researching? Or do you do your research and then sit down and write? And how much about witchcraft was important for you to incorporate? Great questions. Well, so it was important to me to incorporate witchcraft because I had read about Hawthorne, right? And one of the things that did haunt Hawthorne is that his great-great-grandfather was a magistrate in the Salem Witch Trials, and he was the only one who never recanted, who never said, oh, we made a mistake. Like, they emptied the jails. Everyone said they made a mistake. Only his great-great-grandfather said, no, those women deserve to die. Then I read his novel, House of Seven Gables, and the House of Seven Gables is actually mirrors something that happened in Hawthorne's family between the witchcraft trials and Hawthorne's own generation, which is that two people from either side of the witch trials, the accused and the accuser, descended from those lines, met and married. So I realized that once I had made Isabel somebody who was from Scotland, that I could give her the Isabel Gowdy witch line, and then I could actually have the love story in Hester mirror the love story in the House of Seven Gables. So that was fun for me. In terms of the research, I do a lot of research. As I said, I researched Margaret Fuller for a year. And what I learned about that was the condition of the lives of women in the 19th century and the struggles and where they were in this idea of feminism, which was nowhere but autonomy. They knew that they weren't allowed to own property, that their property could be taken away from them. So I did a lot of research into the economy of Salem in 1829. I did a lot of research into Scottish myth and folklore. I did a lot of research into Hawthorne's life and the set and his set. And the way I kept it organized, see, if I were a scholar, my organization of my research would be abysmal. But I'm not a scholar. (laughs) Um, And so what I do is I just make endless files. And what I finally learned how to do was to keep one day book which I learned from my son and his wife. I keep one day book. It's this black and red book. And anything I'm ever doing, whether I'm in an interview with you guys 
or I'm in the library, or I'm taking notes on a TV show, or I'm writing my own journal entries, I write them all in this book, because I lost a few things when I was working on this book, mm. I would take a note. And then I would be like, which yellow pad did I write? Right. <laughs> but the, the computer helps me organize a lot of my research. And there's like, you know, you can make a reading list, you can make a couple of those, you can make files on your laptop. And that's what I did. Yeah. Wow. I went to Salem a few times too, by the way, which was really fun. We're heading there next week. Yeah. We're very excited. Oh, are you, but you're not going for the literary festival? We don't know. We're, about we're just that. going for the day. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't even know about the literary festival. The literary festival is September 6th, 7th, and 8th, and I'm going to be there. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm going to be at the Salem Literary Festival on September 7th. The evening Excellent. of September 7th. Okay. Good to know. Wow. With Well, and good for our listeners to know also. So Lori just said she's going to be there September 7th. We will put that in the show notes. 7 p.m. Thank you for telling awesome. us. Okay. Thank you. That's awesome. One of the things about reading, Hester, that really surprised me was Hawthorne's racism and his attitude towards slavery and how you brought a whole story arc in about slavery can you talk about that? Sure. So once I realized Hawthorne was a main character, I read a lot about him. And in fact, I interviewed some historians in Salem. And one woman said to me, don't make Hawthorne too nice because he wasn't really a great guy. Hmm. Hawthorne was a classmate of President Pierce. And Pierce was not an abolitionist. In fact, we had the Missouri Compromise and then we had the Kansas-Nebraska Act, I guess. Excuse me, this is a little out of my purview. But anyway, they weren't abolitionists. They just weren't. And if you weren't an abolitionist in New England in 1850, when were you ever going to be an abolitionist, right? And so I just gave him that. I thought that it was very interesting. He was also not much of a feminist, right? There's always a question, was Hester Prynne a feminist heroine or is it a cautionary tale? And since Hawthorne never weighs in, but we know that Hawthorne said things like, there's a famous Hawthorne quote where he complains about all the other women writers at their desks, Amazons at their kitchen tables, scribbling notes or something. So he wasn't much of a feminist. So I decided I would just poke some air into this myth or that many of us have or may have about Hawthorne. And so then what happened was when I started writing this character, Isabel, I moved her out to this cottage outside of town because she was moving in the footsteps of Hester Prynne. And I gave her an African-American neighbor, her friend Mercy. So Mercy shows up very early in the writing of the book. And I was in a writing group. I am in a writing group. And I brought it to the writing group. And someone said, oh, Actually, I'm in a writing group with Alice Elliott Dark, who wrote Fellowship Point. And Alice said, oh, so Mercy is going to be an important character. And I was like, oh, how so, Alice? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then, of course, I started looking into it. And when you read a book by Hawthorne, when you read a book by Louisa May Alcott, you know, anyone but Harry Beecher Stowe, you would think there were never any Black people in New England at that time. But in fact, there was a free Black community in Salem at that time. And since one of my intentions is always to sort of shine a light on the women who were in the margins, why should it only be the women? What about the African Americans, the former enslaved people who lived in Salem? So Mercy showed up very early, Mercy and her two children. 
and her cousin. And I just decided that I would really pursue that. And then once you've put an African-American character in the narrative, especially as a white writer, you better do something with her. And so I did. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's a great character. Mm -hmm. And it's a great storyline of what happens with some of the other characters and how you wove everybody together. That was fun. The subplot. Thank you for mentioning Mm -hmm. that. I'm going to think about that as I'm working on what I'm working on now. Yeah. And, you know, also just the, the female friendships. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I just loved that aspect of the novel so much. Yeah. I mean, in the end it's the female community that saves her, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over again, years upon years upon years. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Because everyone else is unreliable. Oh, mm-hmm. there are a few good guys in the book. Yeah, the captain. He mm-hmm. he definitely helps her. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Although there yeah. is a moment, some people have said to me, and for listeners who've read the book, you know, that they did think, oh, my God, was he really a slave catcher? Right. I kind of put planted that in there. And some people, I said, oh, no one's going to really think he's a slave catcher, but I'll leave it. And um, you do for a moment wonder, wait, is he as good a guy or is every single man in this story terrible? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One question I have. So back to the synesthesia. Yeah. And this is a little spoilery. So listeners, turn off your ears if you don't want to hear this. There's one point where she says that she, you know, what did she miss by ignoring voices with no color? And it's related to the the old woman oh widow higgins yeah which is really widow hibbins in the scarlet letter um i don't really have an answer to that question (laughs) all right i was was just kind of curious about that like why would somebody not have provoke color for her you know i i have to be honest the truth is that that was a writerly decision because how could i have every single person bombarding her with color and i talked Mm -hmm. to some synesthetes and they said yeah they don't always experience it You know, I thought that what I found interesting was once she realized that yellow was the color of truth, that she was able to use that and that she understands only through time and experience what the colors are telling her because she learns to understand them. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's very cool. Now the widow is going to be a mystery and somebody can write a story about her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In Hawthorne's book, she is kind of based on someone, although I don't really remember who so again it's that meta through time you know yeah Yeah. so you mentioned I think this was before we were on mic that the paperback's coming out soon we love the cover of the hard back which is what we have Uh I'm going to hold it up do you want to talk about quickly about how the cover came to be and how's the paperback cover going to be different or the same? I love the cover too. So it looks like embroidery for one thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it has the roses and the, the tangle of the leaves and letters. The paperback cover is very similar. It takes off on this, except it has like a piece of red cloth. It's not a cape because you don't see it on a human. There's no person, but it's like a ghostly swath of red through the middle of it. So I think it's even more captivating than this one. And it shows a little more dissonance. So this cover was an evolution and you're really lucky as an author when you get to participate in the cover concept. And I have to say, you know, this is my first book with Macmillan and St. Martin's and and they did such a great job. And my editor, Sarah Canton, kept me so involved every step of the way in the marketing and the cover and everything. And so I was very happy to have my input. The first cover 
was a red haired woman looking out to sea. And actually, that was kind of the cover of my very first novel, Linnell by the Sea, and I didn't really care for it then. So I was like, no. (laughs) So, you know, they ask you for cover comps. They ask you to tell them what you like. And I had sent them like Lily King's cover for Euphoria, which I love. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a, a more colorful, not, you know, expression is not representative of any figure. So they sent some more that focused on embroidery. They sent some beautiful ones that were very literary and we, and I liked them, but in the end, my editor and the marketing people thought they were too quiet because of how they wanted to position the book. So then they gave me some embroidery, but it was really pretty, like colorful embroidery on a white background. And it was beautiful, but it looked like an embroidery magazine cover. Mm. And they didn't want it to look like that. So then they just flipped it and they put it against a dark background. The cover designer is Olga Gerlich. And she stuck with me through the whole thing. And um, I love it. And it looks a lot like a version of, I think it's a penguin paperback version that I have of the Scarlet Letter, which has a black background and an A with some ivy running through the title. Yes. So it looks a lot like that. I've Posted on Instagram of the two covers side by side, actually. Yeah, we've seen that cover. That's a cool one. And when does the paperback come out? The beginning of October. I think the pub date is October 4th. Yeah. Great. Yeah. What is it that you want readers to feel or to take away when they read that last page of Hester? I always like a story with a rocky kind of ending. Although I may write a tragedy someday, I love a story where someone triumphs against the odds and even when you read the last line you know that her ending is hard won and that she learned a lot of hard lessons along the way and that's the kind of story I I like to read a story that makes me feel inspired but I also hope the ending is a little surprising the truth is I didn't know how the book was going to end there were three ways it could have ended right and I won't enumerate them I just want to say that I didn't know until the end And even when I was writing the ending, there were some decisions I made that I didn't know if I would go through with them or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad you said that. Because one of the questions I was going to ask is, did you know the ending when you started writing? And the answer is no. No, I really didn't. Yeah, Not at all. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should probably stop asking questions. (laughs) Thank you so much for writing this novel. It really is the perfect compliment to reading The Scarlet Letter. I'm so glad that we did that first. And I think one of our other listeners, I can't remember which platform, but said it elevated the reading of this novel so much to have just read Scarlet Letter, you know, the month before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris and Emily. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your trip and continued good healing. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.